We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Sally Helgeson, a world premier expert on women's leadership, internationally best-selling author, speaker, and leadership coach. Sally has been inducted into the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame and ranked number one among the world's thought leaders by Global Gurus. What I appreciate most about you, Sally, is your ability to help us understand how we can be more effective and inclusive leaders. Welcome to ROG. Thank you so much. A great pleasure to be here. Thank you. And I feel like I've known you for years because I've been studying your work for many years. So it's wonderful to have you here on the show. So I'd love to start with a little bit of your background. All right. I uh, grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, my parents were uh, college teachers, and I think one of the reasons getting into doing a lot of public speaking was comfortable for me is that uh, we had a big family, big Catholic family, and when the older kids would get too much in my mother's hair, my dad would take a couple of us over to the auditorium at the university in the evening and put us up on the stage and have us give speeches to him. He was a speech professor, so he would give us a kind of grade or say, oh, you could work on this, or why don't you try that? And I think it just made me very comfortable in front of live audiences so that when I published my first real book in leadership field, which was uh, The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership in 1990, and started getting invitations to speak, it was a pretty comfortable place for me to be. And I thought, okay, I I can see, I could do this. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. I've never heard anybody say that. How many siblings do you have? Uh, Five. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's incredible. And do you remember any of your early early day speeches? Like what would you talk to him about? Oh, I was so bad. Oh, you mean back then? Yeah, back then. Oh, early was a I, I think a lot of them were complaints about my siblings. <laughs> really. <laughs> <laughs> you know how kids are. But uh, yeah, I, I would just try to, or they'd be, you know, aspirations I had. I wanted to be an actress at the time mm-hmm. or a writer. Ended up being a little bit of both. Yeah. And uh, so I would would talk about that. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. And so what led you to starting your own firm and being this leadership thought leader? Well, as I said, you know, when the Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership was published in 1990, everything that had been published uh, for women in organizations or business took the point of view that women weren't going to change anything. And therefore, if we wanted to be successful, we had to adapt to the model that we found. We had to leave our values at home. Uh, We had to just sort of, as one woman, very successful writer, Betty Harrigan put it, uh, if it moves, salute it, you're in the army now. And I felt that was terrible advice myself. I had been working in corporate communications at that point for about 10 years. And before that, I'd been a journalist. And I felt that organizations were going through a time of rapid change and that if women were encouraged to just 
exactly adapt to the leadership model that was in place in the 1980s, it wouldn't serve them, it wouldn't be very satisfying, and it wouldn't help lead their organizations forward. So I tried to articulate what women had to contribute as leaders rather than how they needed to change and adapt. And because it was the only book out there that took this perspective, and it was a new perspective, companies started calling me, oh, can you come in and talk to, you know, our women? Can you come in and talk to, it was never the men, but can you come in and and talk to our people? And so I started doing that. And, you know, as I put it, I realized this was a comfortable place for me. I'd mostly been writing speeches for executives who needed, you know, needed uh, transparencies as they were then, not PowerPoint, to say good morning to eight people. So I thought I'd much rather be doing my own talks and delivering them than doing them for executives, even though it was very satisfying work. So so I just uh, took a flyer, made the transition. It was very hard at some times, <laughs> very hard. Women were paid wildly differently than my male colleagues. But I just kept at it. And, uh, you know, 35 years later, here I am. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for that background. That, that tells us a lot. And how you have been studying women's leadership capabilities, their advantage, the benefits, and what are some of the habits that people need to build or break in order to grow in their careers? So I so appreciate your focus in that area and your willingness to put your thought leadership into the world, because I'm sure that was not without any pushback. Oh boy, no. I remember, you know, when the Female Advantage came out, one of the things I would talk about, the the relationship skills, relationship building skills that women had as, you know, a, a real leadership strength. And I would hear the same thing over and over again. Relationship building is not a leadership strength. It is a soft strength. And I'd hear from men, you know, and from women both, that that it was undermining women's ability to position themselves as leaders to even talk about soft skills or soft strengths. So things have changed. They've changed for the better. I've gotten a front row seat to see that, not saying everything's perfect, but boy, you know, go back to the 80s, the 70s. I was there. It was different. <laughs> I was there in the 60s. I was working in advertising in the Mad Men era. Things have gotten better. They have gotten better, slow but sure. <laughs> and mm. what do you attribute that to, Sally? I know that's a big question, but what do you think are some of the reasons why? And we're going to talk about rising together and inclusive leadership and inclusive workplaces. But I'm just curious to get your front row seat perspective on what do you think has attributed to some of that success or growth? I think three things. One is just the fact that because of their participation, women have been, I believe, in have been instrumental in redefining how we understand excellence in leadership in a way that makes it more likely that their skills will be noticed and valued. Three mm-hmm. other things I would say have been really important is the growth women have in confidence. Confidence in their own skills, in their own ability to and right to make a difference and speak up. That confidence is not where it will be, 
but it is it has significantly increased in the time that I've been in this field. The other mm-hmm. thing that's often overlooked is the solidarity women have built among themselves. Uh, that was not true back when I started. It was kind of a queen bee thing, you know, where the woman who was the most successful generally would see absolutely no value in associating uh, or being a mentor for or support for other women in the organization. In fact, I remember in the 90s, often companies would be doing these, starting these women's networks, and they would want to get support from senior women who had a high visibility and and really significant roles, and they wouldn't be able to get them to support these initiatives. So they would call me and they would say, can you talk to so-and-so and see if she'll support, you know, she might listen to you. And I would call these women. And what I heard was always the same thing. I want to be seen in this company as a leader, not a woman. Okay, first of all, good luck with that. <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> Secondly, it just made them uptight about associating with other women. I don't yeah. hear that ever anymore. In fact, it's almost the opposite. Women at senior levels see great advantages in being seen as a support and a mentor for other women and will often make that their their sort of favorite cause within the organization. So that uh-huh. has changed almost completely. And, you know, still outposts where it exists, but it's rare. And then the third thing is I think that women have become much more, and this has been more recent, much more aware of the need that they have to build allies among men and more skilled and confident at doing that. So these three things all play together as does this, you know, redefinition of excellence in leadership. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you. And I really, I can see the how the first thing you said about women redefining excellence is played out in the other examples of the solidarity and the confidence and the awareness of how to build allyships in all kinds of relationships. And so I assume that this has led you to this next book. I mean, you just released about a year ago, Rising Together, How We Can Bridge Divides and Create a More Inclusive Workplace. I love everything about this title and book and concept. What what led you to write this, Sally? What was the need that you were trying to fulfill? Well, first of all, I had a long history of working in inclusive leadership. So kind of two streams of business, women's leadership and inclusive leadership, because I'd written a book called The Web of Inclusion, uh, published in 1990, which was really the first time that the language of inclusion had been used in organizations. So when inclusion and diversity got sort of yoked together in the late 90s, I was one of the people that DNI, or not what's now DEI, uh, but as DNI initiatives got started in companies, they would call me because, again, there was there were not many people out there who'd who'd done this, and I was identified with with the word inclusion. So I've been working on that throughout my career with How Women Rise because that book was so remarkably successful. We are 
in 25 languages, if you can imagine. I've got my Mongolian edition up on the shelf behind me just because I never thought I'd sell a book in Mongolian. But (laughs) So it's been very successful. And one of the things I realized about How Women Rise is that how, that very tactical how, here are some very small, concrete things you can do to improve your uh, your ability to get recognized, to be known for your achievements, to start leveraging more support, to address ruminating and and uh, uh, to address perfectionism, et cetera. So it's very tactical, very how oriented. So I was kind of thinking vaguely, you know, maybe I should find a, a, another way to build on this how idea. So I was doing a program and it was a women's leadership program out in Las Vegas. This is about a year and a half after How Women Rise came out. So about 2019, right before the pandemic. And it was at the Construction Super Conference. <laughs> and so it was, there were about 6,000 men there. And they had wanted me to uh, deliver a program on women's leadership. And I said, oh, okay, so who do you expect will be there? They said, well, about 150 women who want to discover, you know, how they can make their voices heard and better position themselves for their careers in the very difficult sector of construction. So I said, that's, that's fine. Um, and they said, so that's who we think, about 150 women. So I went down to my breakout because uh, it was, you know, obviously 6,000 people. It was not a full session. Went down to my breakout and I walked into the room and there were almost 300 people there and uh, over half of them, maybe two thirds were men. Not surprising given the composition of the conference. And I was very surprised because that, that had never happened. I've had men show up certainly, but and more and more, but never, you know, a preponderance. And I was completely unprepared. I mean, what I what I prepared was very much for women. So I said, you know, kind of buying time, you know, well, what brought you here? What are you, what are you most interested in? Well, you know, I wasn't surprised by what they said. We're having a terrible time attracting and especially retaining talented women. We need them. That's who's in the workforce. We need to, you know, we're hoping to get some tips. And then this one guy who was an executive stood up and he said, look, <laughs> please do not waste your time. And I, he also meant their time. Please don't waste your time uh, telling us why we need to get better at that, at this. We understand, we get it, but we do not have a clue how to do it. So I thought that's, that's really what my next book is going to be. It's going to be the how of building more effective relationships with people we may feel are different from ourselves. How leadership can encourage cultures in which we can do that, which are by nature more inclusive cultures, but also what we as individuals need to know. Because if we stand around waiting for HR or DNI or whoever to do this, it's not going to work. We, every one of us needs to take initiative. And it's also very good for our careers to be people who are skilled at building a really broad range of relationships. Mm. 
Oh, thank you for that background. That really helps. And to know that the how, like people are thirsting for the concrete, tactical, day-to-day, in the moment, what do I do? You know, what would this look like? The way that you have set this book up, Rising Together, is around these eight common triggers. And the way you describe it is that there's these eight common triggers that undermine our ability to collaborate across the divides, all different kinds of divides. Um, So you give us like the tactical how-tos with these eight triggers. I'm curious to know how you even deduce the eight. (laughs) Did you like look at a series of stories and examples and think, here's some themes? Well, that's a good question. And the book is divided really into two parts. And in the beginning, I look at the triggers that can undermine us. And then in the second part of the book, I look at at inclusive behaviors and what they are and what they look like. But I realized I started the book with the inclusive behaviors. And then I thought, wait a minute, the reason people generally don't practice these is because they have no idea how to behave in an inclusive way. The reason is that they're generally held back from doing so because of some perception that's getting in their way. So, you know, one of the fair, one of the, one of the triggers is communication style. You know, we don't like how someone communicates. You know, we find them irritating the way they talk. Uh, they seem to be full of themselves. They seem to be too humble and, and meek, whatever it is. Um, they seem to be all about me. They seem to be incapable of talking about themselves, whatever it is. So that's getting in our way. It's a communication trigger. Uh, Fairness is a huge trigger. You know, well, that wasn't fair. Uh, They promoted that guy over me. I worked harder. I got better results. You know, so he's being in this organization seems unable to recognize female talent. But I hear from men too, you know, oh yeah, I got passed over, of course, for a woman because our company is dedicated to promoting women. You hear it from Oh, African-Americans, certainly, you know, our company is very poor at identifying uh, African-American contributions. You hear from aggrieved white people. Hey, you know, well, I can't get a break around here because I'm white. So people have these perceptions of fairness and often it's actually something else, something they haven't considered, or it may just be unfairness. But whichever it is, it can trigger in us an inability to even want to behave in ways that help us, you know, that that are most likely to enlist those people as allies. So they become barriers to building an inclusive uh, environment, but also uh, they become barriers for us in terms of, you know, how effective we can be because we're limiting the scope of our relationships. Now, how did I come up with eight? That's a good question. I generally get my information from my books based on observation in all the workshops, seminars, and masterclasses I've done over the years. So what I was looking at was what I'd heard people talking about that had had sort of triggered them in the workplace. You know, triggers can operate in any environment, but I'm, I'm, I'm about the workplace. So that's what I was looking at. And, and I decided that the ones I chose 
really best represented that. And a couple of them are very common. The visibility, the communication and fairness, as I mentioned, the visibility. And again, we can be triggered either way. So if we're really good good at gaining visibility, we can be triggered by people who aren't. Well, clearly not a player, won't speak up, won't participate. Fine, I'll write them off. But we can certainly be triggered if we're not very good at visibility by people who are good at it. Oh, what a showboat. He's eating up the room once again. Uh, you know, Mr. has an opinion on everything. So we can be triggered in various ways, depending on how it goes. But, but I believe that we have to deal with the triggers first because they will hold us back from, from picking up inclusive behaviors and really using them to everyone's advantage. So helpful. So with that example of the visibility, I mean, what are some of the ways someone could untrigger themselves or maybe even have self-compassion and say, I can understand why I would find that irritating. Maybe that's telling me something about myself. I mean, what... What do you recommend with, with that one in particular? There's a couple that I want to dig into. <laughs> well, you know, that self-compassion is a really good point because what we want to do is not give ourselves a hard time. What we're trying to do really is give, is give other people the benefit of our goodwill. But in doing that, we want to give ourselves the benefit of our goodwill. So we're not deciding we're wrong to feel a certain way. We're just trying out a different story. What I work with, again, you know, and I do a lot of these master classes, uh, something that evolved when we were all virtual, but now I've taken them in person as well. One of the things I've evolved as a very effective practice is having people rewrite a script to some extent. So say visibility, you know, say, we'll take the most common, most basic thing. You're in a meeting, you're, you know, some something outside the leadership mainstream, a woman, you're, you know, a, a, an ethnic minority, whatever it is in your particular situation, or you're more, or you're fairly junior. You're in a meeting, you say something, you make a contribution, you think you have a good idea, no one echoes it, no one picks up on it. And then five minutes later, um, you know, a guy who's sort of more of a big shot or, you know, just has more connections is, is just, you know, a, a, a guy, part of the leadership mainstream, says the same thing. And our response often is to either think, oh, okay, nice. He's trying to steal my idea. Or it's, okay, look, I say something, no one hears it. He says something, everyone hears it. In either case, we're going to walk away from that feeling to some degree disempowered, possibly aggrieved. We are either going to stew about it ourselves or we're going to grab someone who, who we think may share our point of view and say something like, can you believe that guy? Here he is. You know, I say this. He just grabs it, picks, up, picks it up, runs with it. Everybody thinks he's so great. And I get completely shafted. This happens over and over and over again. So we'll try to bond with somebody or build, you know, kind of, a uh, grapevine, I call that, as opposed to a network 
build a sort of toxic relationship based on our shared resentment, grievance, that may be too strong a word, but just our observation that once again, we're getting the short end of the stick. So when that happens, we have no way really to move forward. You know, this is not something where we can call HR and complain. And, you know, is that something we want to do anyway? Uh, it, 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 we have no path to action. Whereas if we can rewrite that narrative, you know, for example, huh, that's interesting. He built on my point of view. Maybe he was trying to amplify it for the other people here. That was really a nice gesture. I can thank him. You know, I can say, wow, I'm really glad you amplified my idea uh, and gave it more credibility. That was terrific. Glad to know that I have your support. You know, even if he didn't at all, doesn't matter. See, it doesn't matter if this is true. Right. You don't have yeah. to believe it. No. It just is, it's a framing that gives you a path to action. That's why it's powerful. Giving that person the benefit of our goodwill or or you can think of it as, wow, okay. So, um, you know, he kind of claimed that idea that I put out there, but I want to make sure that I am still in the mix here. So then you can go up to the person and say, um, glad you agreed with what I said. Uh, I, I wonder if there's a way for the two of us to help move this forward. I'm glad to work with you. Uh, if this is something you want to do. So again, you're, what's powerful about this, again, I'll say it, you don't need to believe it's true. It, you just want to come up with something that gives you a potential for acting in a way that can move yourself forward and prevent and cut off that temptation to feel under-recognized, undervalued in some way, aggrieved, even if you are, even if you have been undervalued and under-recognized. Now, the main pushback I get to this, other than, well, I'm not going to do something based on it, it, it not being true. Guess what? It might be true. You don't know. Uh, you're, you're, in a sense, you're in essence getting sort of curious about what, why that may have happened. You're remaining open to other interpretations than the one you had immediately. So it's not necessarily one or the other is true. You don't know. But the most frequent um, objection I get to it is, you know, I really value my own authenticity. So I am not interested in telling myself a story that I think may be fake and acting fakely, etc. Okay, fine. That's legitimate. You value your own authenticity. We've been told many, many times over recent years that we need to be fully authentic in ourselves, and that's good as far as it goes. But the question is, how is that serving you? And how, how can it serve you, given this example? Is there something that could be more useful to you than remaining sort of smugly stuck in valuing your own authenticity. You have the capacity to change. You have the capacity to grow. And I think that sometimes these stories we tell ourselves about our authentic selves can keep us stuck and hold us back from growing. Mm. 
So well said and very true. And when I'm hearing you say that, Sally, I was thinking the story that we're making up about that situation isn't necessarily true. It's just the story that we've decided to tell, right? And you're saying, like, retell it. If if you're not, if it's not serving you and not helping you to be the kind of leader you want to be or be, you know, fully empowered, have agency in the situation. And I think it goes to that chapter that you have in How Women Rise around rumination that, we, you know, we just kind of keep replaying these old tapes, so to speak, in our minds and not getting anywhere. And then you're saying too that sometimes we then play the tape for others and we we perpetuate that, which I think also creates a less inclusive environment because we're not being honest and transparent with one another. And so I, I'm just so grateful to hear how you got to this place because knowing that you wrote Web of Inclusion back in the 90s and that you've been focusing on inclusion all these years and now you're saying, okay, I'm going to get even more explicit and give people like a guide on how to do this uh, and rise together. So so what? why is it so essential? Why is inclusive leadership so critical? Inclusive leadership and inclusive cultures are absolutely critical because, and this is, was the brilliance of sort of diversity and inclusion getting paired as they did around 1997, precisely because the workplace is so much more diverse in terms of gender, in terms of race, ethnicity, national background, age. Uh, We have a huge spectrum of ages in the workplace now in terms of, yeah, ability, sexuality, values, uh, uh, experiences, backgrounds. It's a highly diverse uh, workforce that we have now. So every organization has to figure out how are you going to engage a really diverse workforce? How are you going to motivate people? You know, we keep reading about these surveys, Gallup has been doing them for some time, about the extreme disengagement of so many employees. And and companies, if they're not struggling with that, they know they need to struggle with it because it's a huge problem in terms of turnover. So one of the reasons that you have that turnover is when people do not feel that they are seen and valued and recognized. And this is much harder for people outside the traditional leadership mainstream. And I'm calling it the traditional leadership mainstream because it's not always or necessarily white guys. If you're in an educational establishment, it can be women. Um, If you're in Japan, it's not white guys who are part of the leadership mainstream. And I do this work all over the world. So it's very much people who are outside that leadership mainstream are more likely to feel and to be underrecognized and undervalued. And that's why building an inclusive culture is so vitally important. For a leader, it's a way of not burning through your talent base uh, and having unnecessary amounts of attrition. For an individual, it's a way of creating a path whereby we can tell ourselves stories that will serve our own sense of belonging. 
And, you know, leaders often will say to me, and I have this in the book, that, you know, well, how do I know if I have an inclusive culture? Do you have an assessment tool for it? The best assessment tool is to listen to your people. If they talk about we, when they're talking about the organization, you're, you're on pretty good track for, to have an inclusive culture. If they talk about they, you know you don't have it. So save your money, <laughs> don't do an assessment, and just listen to how people talk. Uh, people don't talk about we unless they feel like a part of. So that's really the job now is creating cultures in which the largest possible number of people feel a part of, speak of the organization as a we, not just a they, feel uh, recognized for their potential, not just their contributions, and don't feel that the only way they matter is based on their positional power. That's what the task is. Uh, for creating cultures right now. Yes, that that's so well said. And a hard thing to accomplish. So I'm grateful that you're, you're simplifying that again. Just what are you listening for? What are you hearing? Do you have any analogies that you use when you're trying to help teams or leadership teams, organizations understand diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging? Yeah, well, it's basically that idea of how do we get to a we? You know, how do you think about Uh, the distribution of power. How does the organization uh, recognize and value power? I talked there in in Rising Together about the four kinds of power in organizational, positional power, uh, the power of connections, the power of expertise, and the power of personal authority, how much people trust you. And organizations that have inclusive cultures tend to balance those different kinds of culture of, of, of power. Whereas very um, leader-centric, uh, closed-off cultures tend to only and explicitly value positional power. And again, you can see that in all kinds of ways manifested, you know, how offices are distributed, how are parking spaces distributed, Distributed, you know, to get really basic about things. You know, how comfortable do people feel asking questions that offer a little bit of pushback in leadership meetings? Where are people seated? All those kinds of, you know, details are the ways in which people judge whether they have a culture of we. And not because the leader talks glowingly about the leadership commitment model. You know, I can be really skeptical about this stuff. I was a speechwriter. So I wrote a lot of, you know, mission statements for organizations that, you know, we'd sit around and laugh at how ludicrous they were given what we knew about the culture, but they would be, you know, very ponderously shared. And so, you know, what the leader is saying is a much, is not the clue. The clue is all those little intangibles that people, that make people feel like, "Mm, okay, I see, I'm part of this. I can make my contribution. Absolutely. We had a guest on ROG named Ron Tite who wrote a book called Think, Do, Say. And he said that, you know, first we have to think it, like believe it, then we've got to do the things, the manifesting, that behavior, the actual day-to-day, and then say, you know, then put it on the website. But sometimes it's in the reverse and the think and the do aren't really congruent. 
Um, so what would you say people get wrong about inclusive leadership? What people get wrong about inclusive leadership is they'll conflate it with a sort of, you know, everyday niceness that is not the point. It'll give me a, a case in point that I reference in the book. And that is Alan Mulally when he came to use his famously collaborative and inclusive approach to leadership when he came as CEO of Ford Motor Company, left Boeing. Uh, They were going through a lot. He was passed over for uh, CEO. So he came to Ford Motor Company and he was challenged on the first day, you know, for not knowing enough about automobiles, which he didn't. You know, he was, a, as he said, I'm an airplane guy. That's what I, I come from Boeing. I've been doing this my whole life. Said what I do believe that I can do is build a culture in which people feel as we would say today, safe, Amy Edmondson has put that word out there into the environment, and it's great, feel psychologically safe uh, to share their ideas without fear of getting, you know, scorned, shot down, and have a problem so we can really draw on the talent we have here. It's not about my expertise, it's about your expertise. And he said, in the service of doing that, I'm just going to set a couple of ground rules here for us. The first is, we will have no trashing, public trashing of people's ideas in meetings as they're presenting them ever. You listen respectfully. You think about it. Uh, you may bring up what you've been thinking about at the next meeting, but we're not going to like have a commentary on what everybody has to say that dismisses them. So that's number one. And number two is we... We are not going to be a culture that tolerates gossip about fellow employees. That creates a toxic environment where people are afraid to do new things because they're afraid they're going to be talked about. He says, so these are basically the ground rules for doing what we need to be doing going forward. And then went on to talk about some financial objectives. So, he had a number of people who came to him and said, you're treating us like children. You don't get to tell me, you know, you can't say we can't gossip. If I have a good idea in a meeting, uh, I'm going to share it. I'm not going to be worried about tiptoeing around someone's feelings because they said something differently. And Alan just simply said to them, you know, uh, I understand that's perfect. That's your right. I'm sure that your uh, ability to do that will be valued uh, in your next job, <laughs> which begins, <laughs> if you're lucky, tomorrow. So, it, it, you know, it was very clear. He was clear. These are the boundaries. And I'm not violating these boundaries because mm. this is a commitment. We need to create a culture in which we can feel safe, working together in my observation of many decades in the workplace, these are the two behaviors that undermine that kind of feeling of safety. So they will not be tolerated. End of story. There is no discussion Mm -hmm. here. So that's, it's not just being like, well, everybody's got their point of view. And, you know, sometimes there are people who have an inclusion problem almost. They have to listen to every point of view endlessly, no matter how pointless it is. And everybody else is sitting there going, oh, my Lord, are they going to cut this off? That's not an inclusive behavior. That's just, um, a, a, in the words of uh, How Women Rise, uh, you know, being a pleaser, the disease to please. Um, it's very different. 
so you can be decisive, strong, and clear, and inclusive. So true. And how do you think we could support this as not just as a leader, but as a person, as an individual? What are some of the things, the practical things that any one of us can do to practice some of the things that you've been sharing with us? You know, there are, there's a lot we can do. We can listen very actively. And that is, you know, really engage our minds with what other people are saying, not just nodding our heads, thinking about it, considering it, maybe going back to them saying, you know, I've been really thinking about what you said the other day at that meeting, making a little note to ourselves to do that. That's demonstrating uh, respect and inclusion. We can, you know, one of the things my uh, colleague Ruth Gochian pointed out, she said that all these things that come across our desk, you know, take the opportunity, you know, please nominate, you know, a co- someone for this award or for that uh, honor to be really active about doing that. Uh, go out of your way to do that. That's an opportunity to make their day, to make their career, to make their life. Uh, and to demonstrate the support you have and be really specific. I want, I'm thinking, I would like to nominate you for this award. You may have seen the, the notice that went out because what I see you doing is this. People feel valued when they feel seen. So the more clearly and specifically you can articulate what you see and what you notice about what other people do the the further along you'll be on the path to demonstrating an inclusive behavior. We want to remember that it's inclusive behaviors that create an inclusive culture, not inclusive thoughts. <laughs> you know, we've been so focused on this identifying unconscious bias, et cetera, that we've got the idea that it's really about thinking how people think. It's not how you know, people can think what they want to think. It's not really our business, what everybody else is thinking. But, it, you know, we do want to create, we do want to create practices around how we act as opposed to focusing first on what people may be thinking. So it's a really strong distinction. And I think it's a needed corrective to the way some of the diversity equity and inclusion training has been done in organizations. But I think among ourselves also, you know, to give each other, giving each other the benefit of our goodwill means not really caring what someone else thinks. Oh, I know that guy in his heart. I'm sure he's very chauvinistic. Who cares? The important thing is how is he behaving? You know, people change their mind. People's thinking evolves over time. So, you know, that's really what I mean by, I love your word, return on, or your words, return on generosity, because it's, it kind of reflects this idea of giving others the benefit of our goodwill, which is a generous thing to do. So we want to be generous. We want to be generous in making people offers. We want to be generous in, in offering to introduce people to those we know who may be able to help them or, or give them a boost in one way or another. All those things are really inclusive behaviors. Ah, 
Outstanding. Thank you, Sally. And just the the title of your book says it all with rising together. It's that rising tide lifts all boats. It's like all of us together and that we're bridging these divides. We're trying to find ways to bring them together. And then the the outcome of that is the inclusive workplace. So thank you so much for sharing your thought leadership with us and your time. Thank you so much, Shannon. I really enjoyed being here. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.